Hey, creep. I want to tell you a tale, if you're ready to hear it. It may not be pleasant. It may not end the way you want it to. But this story is gripping and as fascinating as it is shockingly horrifying. Are you ready? My name's Cole, and you're listening to Tales. It all happened in a small suburban city in Canada. A boy peering through the window of his neighbor's home saw something that likely still haunts his dreams. On April 23, 2006, Mark and Deborah Richardson were found dead, lying inside their home, having been viciously and mercilessly murdered. Their eight-year-old son, Jacob, was also tragically found dead in the home, lying on his bed. When police arrived, horrified, disgusted, nauseated at the sheer brutality of the scene they'd found in the otherwise small, sleepy city of Medicine Hat, Alberta, they were quick to take notice that Mark and Deborah Richardson's daughter, 12-year-old Jasmine wasn't found murdered like her little brother and parents, but instead seemed to be missing entirely from the home. Initially, cops rallied to search for the missing girl, assuming she'd been kidnapped, but as evidence came to light and began to tip the scales, investigators stopped searching for Jasmine, the innocent kidnapped girl whose family had just been slain, and instead began to search for Jasmine, the killer. Unlike other girls transitioning from childhood to adolescence, Jasmine had a boyfriend. Now, it isn't uncommon for kids to begin holding hands in the hallways at school and begin to get curious about that part of life, but unlike other girls her age, Jasmine was dating an older boy. Much, much older. In fact, he was 11 years older, making him 23 when they began to date. No, this isn't a case of a habitually rebellious or troublemaking child. This is an instance of a pedophile grooming a young girl. A young girl who had been happy and sociable and generally well-liked and lived an overall fulfilling and wholesome life until she met Jeremy Steink. The two met at a punk rock show. It was a new and exciting world for Jasmine Richardson and she was quickly enthralled by the goth aesthetic wearing thick, dark makeup and black clothing. That helped her fit in. She fit the aesthetic, but it also helped to hide just how terribly young she truly was. Now, the way I've seen it portrayed in articles, Jasmine followed the typical rabbit hole that every goth does, the clothing, the makeup, and from there progressing past the aesthetic form of self-expression into the lifestyle of being a goth, the vampirism the Satanism, the idolization of murder and suicide, but I refuse to feed into the satanic panic and would like to make note that anything you might read from other sources is designed to enthrall and inflame puritanical sensibilities. These darker aspects are not mutually exclusive with being goth, but unfortunately for Jasmine, 23-year-old Jeremy and his brand of quote-unquote goth was in fact a little more extreme than one would typically find. And as such, he was advised by Jeremy to join a website called Vampire Freaks. 
Jasmine had lived a stable life with loving and supportive parents. Jeremy had not. Jeremy's mother was an alcoholic who married an abusive man who would often take out his rage on Jeremy. This translated in his inability to connect and socialize in meaningful ways at school, resulting in him being bullied mercilessly, and before meeting Jasmine, even attempting to take his own life. None of that, though, excuses the fact that he was grooming a 12-year-old girl, nor did it excuse what was to come, but it is important context nonetheless. Whether it was a cry for attention or burgeoning mental health problems and a disassociation from reality as a means to escape from his home life. But by the age of 13, Jeremy would wear a vial of blood around his neck and claim to be a 300-year-old werewolf. I don't believe it comes as any surprise to you creeps that Mark and Deborah, Jasmine's parents were, well, less than supportive of their daughter's relationship with Jeremy. By the time he was claiming to be a 300-year-old werewolf, Jasmine was barely learning to walk. Naturally, her parents did what they thought they could to discourage Jasmine's association with Jeremy. They forbid her from seeing him, but to Jasmine it felt as if they were punishing her directly, when I can imagine they were probably feeling more concerned and scared for their daughter. But unfortunately, those actions only served to make her feel isolated from her family and support system. Alongside the scorn of her parents, Jasmine was also increasingly alienated from her friends as well, who were openly and rightly critical of the relationship and the age gap involved. Unfortunately for everyone, Jasmine wasn't heeding the advice of her friends and family. All she heard was criticism, that given the context of her vulnerable age and the fact that Jeremy was, in fact, grooming her, seemed wholly unfair and cruel to her. And Jeremy's reaction only solidified her feelings. In a blog post, Jeremy wrote, Payment. My lover's rents are totally unfair. They say that they really care. They don't know what's going on, they just assume. Their throats, I want to slit. Finally, there shall be silence. Their blood shall be payment. Those words drip with seething anger. Those words also seem to serve as the blueprint for what would happen next. At least that's what you'd assume. But it was actually Jasmine who initially called for murder's action, according to police. In an email to Jeremy, she wrote unprompted, It begins with me killing them, and ends with me living with you. This was obviously well received by Jeremy, he wrote back expressing how much he loved her idea, but that her plan to murder her family would need to be more creative than that. It seems, though, for a period in time at least, that Jasmine's plan to murder her family was perhaps a call for help. I can only assume, as I've never planned to murder anyone, that if you were to in fact plan a murder, the last thing you'd want to do is express those plans to others. But Jasmine was anything but tight-lipped, and even expressed her murderous intent to her friends who brushed it off, assuming it was simply crazy talk. On the evening before their plan to free Jasmine of her parents by ending their lives, Jeremy watched natural-born killers with his friends. The movie features two lovers, who kill 52 people in total. In the film, the murderous couple, Mickey and Mallory, kill Mallory's parents 
This is a chilling fact, considering two moments in the chain of events. Firstly, it was in watching that movie that Jeremy decided that they shouldn't spare Jasmine's little brother. This he expressed to his friends who he watched the film with. And later down the road, Jeremy would enlighten an undercover cop to his thoughts and enthusiasm for the movie by saying, You ever watched the movie Natural Born Killers? I think that's the best love story of all time. In Medicine Hat, Alberta, Canada, on April 23, 2006, Jasmine and Jeremy finally took action. Jeremy stalked through the home, finally finding Jasmine's mother, Deborah Richardson, in the basement of the family home. With a knife, he brutally stabbed her 12 times, one of those stab wounds piercing her heart. She fought and screamed bravely against the attacks, and Mark Richardson, her husband, heard the defensive cries from upstairs. Running into the basement, he rushed to help his wife fight off Jeremy, who was frantic and full of bloodlust. With a screwdriver in his hand, he tried to battle against the younger man, but it was no use. The knife which Jeremy held gave him too much of an advantage. Jeremy stabbed Mark Richardson 22 times with nine of those stab wounds to Mark's back. Jeremy covered in blood, having just killed Jasmine's parents as per her plan, walked upstairs full of adrenaline from the terrible and evil deeds he had just carried out. There he found Jasmine with her younger brother, eight-year-old Jacob. He was terrified, just waiting there with her, scared out of his mind. He had heard the blood-curdling screams, and while too young to fully rationalize all that was happening, he knew enough. Utterly defenseless, the most vulnerable member of the Richardson family watched as his older sister stood over him with a knife in hand. He begged her not to hurt him, asking through tears why she was going to hurt him. She ignored his pleas. Without answering him, she cut his throat and then fled as her little brother tragically bled out on the bed. Now, creeps, we've come full circle. The next day, a young boy ran over to the Richardson home. He was friends with Jacob and wanted to see if he could come out and play. But no one answered the door. So the little boy looked through the basement window and saw what no little child should ever have to see. In shock, he ran home to tell his mother and she was the one to call the police. An officer arrived at the home and peered through the same basement window as the boy before. At least one body was visible motionless on the floor. Immediately, the officer called for backup and EMTs in the hope that someone might still be alive in the home. When they entered, they found Mark, Deborah, and Jacob brutally murdered. But no Jasmine. Police were quick to send out an Amber Alert. They had a missing child on their hands, possibly kidnapped by the murderer. But as they methodically moved through the home, finally arriving at Jasmine's room, they were quick to find out that their previous assumptions were wrong. Digital evidence. Piles and piles of digital evidence were found on Jasmine's computer in the contents of her emails with Jeremy. Investigators were not looking for a kidnapped child, but a child killer. In the film Natural Born Killers, the two murderous lovers go on a rampage totaling dozens of victims without being caught until the final act of the film. 
Luckily, neither Jeremy nor Jasmine were nearly as resourceful. The next day, the couple were arrested for the triple murder. Now, as I said before, Jeremy and Jasmine were anything but tight-lipped about their plan. And as the 2007 trials began, prosecutors had no shortage of testimonies in court, with one of those many witnesses detailing how Jeremy had said that Jasmine's parents had been gutted like fish. Jasmine at her trial was given the moniker JR because of her age. She pled not guilty. Her defense was that the email contents that detailed her plans and conversations surrounding the murder of her family, while they were all cathartic hypotheticals, she never truly intended to carry out the deeds. Meanwhile, Jeremy's defense was that he was stupid and immature and willing to do anything for love, even going so far as to murder Jasmine's parents for her in an attempt to keep her from not loving him anymore. But when it was all said and done, both were convicted on three counts of first-degree murder. Jeremy was given three life sentences, but will be eligible for parole after serving 25 years. Jasmine, though, is a whole different story entirely. She was the youngest individual to have ever been convicted of first-degree murder in Canada, and she did end up spending ten full years in the criminal justice system. While in custody, she was subjected to extensive psychiatric assessment, as well as treatment and rehabilitation. The definitive diagnosis given to her was that of ODD, Oppositional Defiant Disorder, which is a conduct disorder exemplified as a pattern of hostile, disobedient behavior directed at adults or other authority figures. While in prison, she attended college, and in 2016 was released after serving 10 years. Justice Scott Booker stated at her release hearing, You've indicated through your conduct that you have a desire to atone for what you did. Clearly, you cannot undo the past. You can only live each day with the knowledge that you can control how you behave. Now, creeps, it's time for one of my unpopular opinions. And really, it's not an opinion. It shouldn't even be up for debate. It's just an observation to cap off this episode. The correctional facilities known as prisons are just that. They're correctional facilities. Jasmine was a victim. She was groomed by a pedophile at the age of 12. At the age of 12, you can barely make any decisions for yourself, let alone fully realizing out a plan for murder. In this instance she was able to be rehabilitated. The correctional facility corrected that which was broken in her. Or at least I hope so. Because it fills me with hope, at the end of such a dark and terrible story, that sometimes the justice system and the correctional systems actually work. So, creeps, that brings us to the end of our tale. If you enjoyed this episode and want more, please consider becoming a Patreon member by visiting patreon.com slash talesbycole, where we release a Patreon-exclusive podcast weekly for Patreon members generous enough to donate $5 or more. 
If you have some time on your hands, please consider leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. They are so incredibly important in getting these stories out there. And even more importantly, every five-star review gets me one step closer to moving out of my mother's basement. You can also join us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram by searching Tales by Cole. This episode was written and narrated by me, Cole Weavers, and sound production and editing by Matt Black. Remember, creeps, take care of one another, stay safe, and don't forget to lock the doors. (laughs) 